Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Mark. We've been going through Mark for the last few months or so. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, that's our text for this morning. And as you're doing that, I want you to just consider uh, a phrase that really comes from our title this morning, the title of our sermon, uh, this idea of being the family of God. It's a phrase you may have heard a fair bit. It's uh, somewhat used frequently in the church. And I want you to consider what does that mean? What does it mean to be the family of God? What does it mean that we are God's children, that we are adopted into God's family, that we are co-heirs with Christ? What does it mean to be the family of God? And perhaps more importantly for us, not just what does it mean, but also what are the implications of such a statement? When we say that we are part of the family of God, does that mean that we are no longer a part of our earthly families? How are we supposed to interact with those who are a part of those natural families? After all, how do we reconcile what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke when he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with this, with this never-ceasing tension to balance our commitment to God and yet at the same time to balance our commitment to our families, and they have been met with varying degrees of success. And so today, some people uh, resolve this tension by just simply ignoring it. They reject the possibility that the demands of discipleship, the demands of following God and Christ will mean that they have to go into conflict at times with their family. And in so doing, in this idea of just ignoring this tension, they allow any number of family priorities to supersede the call of discipleship. And that is probably one of the biggest challenges facing the church today in the West. We haven't fully grasped what it means for us to be a part of God's family. And so our earthly families sometimes can, by default, take over just because that's what the rest of our culture is doing. But... While that may be the case for some, that's certainly not the case for everyone. For all those who tend to resolve this tension just by ignoring the call of discipleship, there are some who resolve this tension by avoiding the hard work of investing in their family for what can sometimes seem to be more tangible or at least more easily attainable fruit of quote-unquote doing church. And there are plenty of people who can... Uh, if their, their families are honest, if their, their children, their spouses, their relatives are honest, they carry this hidden resentment toward the church because of a lack of healthy understanding of how we are called to be a part of the family of God and yet also at the same time love our earthly families. There's a story of Francis of Assisi, uh, a Christian from the 1100s. It's a good illustration of this, I think. Francis of Assisi was born to the son of Italian merchants who were very, very wealthy, and and they were Christian in name because that's what everyone in Italy in the 1100s was, Uh, but this family was ruthlessly committed to their own wealth. They were ruthlessly committed to their own success, and that's the, the context that Francis of Assisi grew up in, but eventually he became a Christian when he began to feel the meaninglessness of all of the things that his family had done for him. And he was cut to the core by his family's excesses, and he was convinced that it was his sole responsibility to address the decay of the Italian church. And so Francis of Assisi, once, he went into his father's shop one day, he gathered up some of his father's most expensive merchandise, and he sold it 
without his father knowing, and he gave it all to the prophets of the church. Now, needless to say, his dad wasn't too excited about that when he discovered that uh, the modern-day modern equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars of his merchandise, his livelihood, had gone missing, all because it had ended up as a donation to the early church. And so we have this tension that we can, we can find ourselves in. There's got to be a better way, a, a, a way for us to, to devote ourselves to the gospel and yet not robbing our parents of all their wealth. This idea of a way that calls us to die to self and yet doesn't unnecessarily burn bridges with our family. That doesn't put stumbling blocks up in front of those that are in our earthly families who are on their own journey with God. And actually, Jesus speaks to this tension in his ministry. As we've worked our way through the gospel of Mark, the first two and a half chapters of Mark, we've seen some astonishing claims of who Jesus is, some, some amazing power from Jesus. We've seen Jesus, his popularity just exploding throughout Galilee, and last week we even saw that it's exploding beyond the region of Galilee, and yet at the same time there is opposition to Jesus as well. And this morning we're introduced, introduced to two new groups of people. We're introduced to Jesus' family, specifically his mother Mary and his half-brothers. And we're also introduced to the religious leaders, not just on a local level, but actually the religious leaders on the national level, those who are from Jerusalem itself. And in this passage, we see what it actually means for us to be a part of the family of God. Now, as we look at this passage, you may be a little confused why on earth we are looking at these two groups together. After all, it seems like the religious authorities who are very hostile toward Jesus and Jesus' family are, are, are night and day. So why are we looking at these two together? Well, to understand the reason why, we have to understand one of the ways that Mark is writing his gospel. This is the first of many passages that we will see in the Gospel of Mark where Mark actually intentionally puts two different stories together where he weaves them together as a way of helping us understand each story a little bit better. Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, I've oftentimes, call, oftentimes called this Mark's sandwich method. He starts in verses 20 and 21 with a, t with a discussion or a story about Jesus' family, and then he goes in 22 through 30 with a discussion about the religious authorities, the religious leaders, and then he comes back to Jesus' family in verses 31 through 35. And we may ask, why does, why does Mark weave these together? And the answer is, is because by understanding one story, it helps us to understand the other a little bit more effectively. Mark does this throughout his gospel. We'll, we'll see it time and time again as we are going through this gospel. Uh, but, but as we look at this text, it's clear that Mark wants us to use verses 22 through 30, the, the, the main section of this story. He wants us to use that to help us understand something about Jesus' family, about the true family of God. And so as we approach this text, we're going to look at it in four separate parts. It's going to break down to four responses. First, we see Jesus' family's response to his ministry. Then we see the, Jesus, or the religious authorities' response to his ministry. And then we see Jesus' response to the religious authorities. And then Jesus responds to his family. So let's start with the first, found in verses 20 and 21. Jesus' family responds to his earthly ministry. Verses 20 and 21. Then he, Jesus, went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
The story starts the way it oftentimes does at the beginning of Mark. The crowds continue to flock to Jesus, as we saw last week in verses 7 through 12. They're coming from over hundreds of miles away because of his power over sickness, because of his power over evil. And now, in the midst of this fervor that is surrounding Jesus, it's reached to such a height that Jesus doesn't even have time to eat. Here is a man who is so pressed by these crowds, they're they're surrounding him, they so desire healing that Jesus' own health is actually in question. And when his mom hears about it, enough is enough. She sends her other sons out to get her firstborn Jesus. Mary is, of course, worried sick about Jesus. She's beginning to hear these stories about how Jesus is staying up all night praying and how he doesn't have the personal space or the personal time to go grab a sandwich. He's been gone for weeks, maybe even months at this point, and he's giving, 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 and now Mary is worried sick that he is going to collapse dead from exhaustion. And so she sends her sons out to go get him. It's the best of intentions that we see here. Mary loves Jesus. Jesus' brothers probably love Jesus, even if they were a little bit exasperated about how difficult it was growing up in his shadow back in Nazareth. But they come here to, to grab their brother and say, if you can't catch some rest, Jesus, we're going to go ahead and bring you back home, and we're going to force you to take a sabbatical. It's for your own good. But Jesus doesn't just, Jesus' family doesn't just want to save Jesus from himself. They also want to do something, uh, excuse me, they don't just want to save Jesus from the crowds. They also want to save Jesus from himself because as we see in verse 21, they actually think that he has gone insane. That's why Mark uses this forceful language here, this language of seize. Jesus' family here, they want to muzzle Jesus. They want to force him to be quiet. They want him to stop drawing this negative attention to the family by all of this opposition that is coming around him. You see, in the ancient world, there was a very thin line between the charge of insanity and the charge of demon possession. And while Jesus' family here, they don't explicitly say, they don't explicitly think necessarily that he is possessed, but... They are worried about his radical living, his radical lifestyle. Now, let's assume the best about Jesus' family here. Let's assume that they are concerned about him. Let's assume that they want, Jesus, they want to see Jesus live this long, healthy life. Even if that's the case, they are still missing the point about Jesus' ministry. They're still missing the point about Jesus' message in the gospel. The Gospel of John, uh, the author, Apostle John, he writes this, for not even his brothers believed in him. You see, there is this tension here as we look at this text, this tension between Jesus' family and what they desire for Jesus and the message of the gospel, this message of the gospel that says, repent and believe the gospel. Over and over in the first two and a half chapters, as we've looked at the gospel of Mark, we've seen this single concern from Jesus. He doesn't care about the crowds. He doesn't care about popularity. He only wants people to hear the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom, this message of deliverance that comes only through him. The crowds don't get it. The religious leaders don't get it. And now we see that Jesus' family doesn't get it either. Now, before we continue, I want us to just pause and to consider what this would look like or any parallels that there might be to today. You see, Jesus' brothers, they're sympathetic toward him. 
They want the best from him. They like him. They, they like his religious commitments. They like the fact that Jesus is living this good moral life. They think it's great that he's telling people to return to God. He's starting this revival in Israel. But they are deeply concerned with the, the meat of his message, this message of the kingdom, this message that is only found in him. That his words here are declaring his authority and even declaring his divinity. And there are people like this today as well, are there not? There are plenty of people who like the moral teachings of Jesus, this idea to love your neighbor as yourself, to turn the other cheek, to judge not lest you be judged, that God is love, and yet they can't at the same time grasp some of the more radical claims that Jesus makes. The, the claim that, that Jesus is the only way to heaven is too narrow-minded. The notion that I am wicked and in desperate need of a Savior is too primitive. The, the idea or the thought that I am called to a radical form of discipleship, this idea of following God with all that I am, well, that's just too much. And so today, people call Jesus to temper it down, to not be so extreme. Just like his family, millennia ago, we are tempted to muzzle Jesus, to water down his message, to make it a little bit more palpable, something that can be controlled. Of course, the scary thing isn't just that Jesus' family is guilty of this. It, the scary thing is that, that Mark, as he's writing this gospel, he actually associates Jesus' family with the response of the religious authorities in verse 22. Take a note. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Because Jesus' popularity has swelled beyond the, the borders of Galilee, the religious leaders from Jerusalem, they, they can't ignore him anymore. And so like any good government body, they decide to go create this uh, task force to go check out what Jesus is doing and what he is teaching, what his ministry is like. And so they begin to follow Jesus around. They, they begin taking notes. They begin to observe his teaching and his actions. And, and after weeks of this, they reach two conclusions. First, they conclude that Jesus is possessed. Beelzebul, this name here, is just another name for Satan. It probably means something like Lord of the Exalted House, and we'll come back to that here in a second. They believe that he is possessed first, and also second, they believe that he is calling on Satan himself in order to be able to perform all of these miracles. This is an interesting thing, because the scribes can't deny that Jesus is performing miracles. They can't describe that he is able to do all of these things, that they've seen Jesus do some pretty incredible things. They can't deny all of that, that he's healed people, that he's cast out all of these demons, that there's something very powerful here with Jesus. And yet... Instead of concluding that Jesus' message might be worth listening to, instead of saying that, well, you know what, maybe your message is validated by your power over sickness, by your power over evil, they conclude instead that Jesus' power comes from evil incarnate. They actually conclude that Jesus sold his soul to the devil in order to have all of this monumental power. And this verse right here, verse 22, it gives me pause. Whenever I hear someone say something like, well, I can't believe in God because I prayed for a miracle and he never gave me one. Or someone who says, I don't believe in God because the Bible talks about miracles all the time and I've never seen one today. Or to put it in more of a positive note, for someone to say, I would believe in God if he would just heal my brother. 
Or I would believe in God if he would answer my prayers to save my marriage. The, the, the religious leaders here, the scribes, and their response to Jesus reminds us that, that people have no problem ignoring the way God is at work. They have no problem ignoring these miraculous acts of God even when they do occur. The scribes had every single opportunity to observe Jesus' miraculous power, and yet, rather than concluding that he was who he says he was, they decided to grasp for an alternative explanation. They resolutely set themselves against Jesus, and they doubled down with these two accusations against Jesus. And so, how does Jesus respond? Well, this is the meat of the text, and Excuse me, in verses 23 through uh, the end, uh, through verse 30. And he, he responds in three statements. The first one is 23 through 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus first addresses the claim or the the statement, the accusation that he gets his power from Satan, that he is using Satan to cast out Satan. He's taking this accusation from the scribes and he's bringing it to the, the logical conclusion of what they are actually saying. And if that accusation is true then there are these massive schisms in Satan's kingdom. There's this civil war going on in Satan's kingdom, and Satan is actually undermining himself. He is an incompetent general who, in this attempt at a military feint, is actually destroying his own kingdom. Now, the the truth of Jesus' response is is self-evident, but let's press the point. Uh, In the 300s BC, Alexander the Great quickly conquered a vast swath of Eurasia, became one of the world's largest empires known to throughout throughout world history. And yet, shortly after his death, after he died, uh, the the kingdom, the empire, dissolved relatively quickly because of squabbling between his successors. And we can say the same throughout history. Every single field that exists, Jesus' statement holds true. Effectiveness is lost when there is strife and when there is this lack of unity. And so you can look at nations, you can look at sports locker rooms, you can look at businesses, you can look at families, you can even look at the church. If Jesus is using Satan in order to destroy Satan's kingdom, then Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. The scribe's logic is ridiculous, and, yet, and, and that's what Jesus is hoping to reveal here. But at the same time that it's ridiculous logic, these terms kingdom and house, they describe these powerful realms that are ruled by Satan. In addition to destroying the, the scribe's argument, Jesus is also making sure that we realize, well, Satan isn't inept. Even if the scribes paint him to be that way, He is not inept. The logical conclusion to Jesus' argument here is that Satan is not acting this way, that his kingdom is not crumbling from internal divisions, from a terrible strategy, though it is crumbling for a different reason. Jesus wants people to take Satan seriously. And that leads us to his second statement found in verse 27. He's responding to this accusation that he is possessed. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Now it's time for a little bit of honesty. Um, How many of you have ever tried to rob a house? Anyone? All right, don't answer that even if that's true. How many of you, when you watch Home Alone, you're actually finding yourself rooting for Harry and Marv? You actually are watching people trying to break in and and steal something, and you're saying, hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'm actually going to go home, and I'm going to work up my own master plan so that way I can rob someone as well. And again, don't don't actually answer that. Uh, See me afterward if that's you. (laughs) In the face of this claim from the scribes that, that Jesus is possessed by Satan, in the face of this claim that he is actually using Satan in order to cast out all of these demons, Jesus uses this brief one-verse parable to describe his true mission. So it's a little bit odd what he's saying here. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, in the first century, if you were going to rob someone, and again, I don't rob, uh, recommend robbing anyone no matter the century, the, the houses were pretty small. Remember, as we saw a couple weeks ago, these houses are only one two rooms large. And so the first thing you would need to do if you were going to rob someone's house is you would actually need to bind up the master of the house. You'd have to tie them up. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using this word picture that's actually inspired by the scribe's claim earlier. Remember what they called him. They said, you are possessed by Beelzebul, which most likely means Lord of the exalted house. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, hey, you want to talk about this Lord of the exalted house? You think that I'm possessed by the Lord of the exalted house? I'm not the one who's possessed by the Lord of the house. I'm the one who comes to bind the Lord of the house and free his captives. This is an incredible statement here from Jesus. By saying that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul and that he is using Satan to cast out all of these demons, the scribes are actually saying that, you know what, Jesus, your ministry is not what it is looking like it is. They, they look at Jesus's ministry and they conclude that Jesus doesn't come to bring freedom. Jesus doesn't come to bring liberation, but instead he comes to bind people in the chains of sin, the chains of evil, to actually bring further bondage into their lives. That when Jesus is claiming to bring freedom, that's actually just a deception in order to bring people further into this bondage of sin. And again, I just want us to pause for a moment and think about some of the ways that that is paralleled today. Now, people may not say that the gospel enslaves us to evil, but they will say it's too restrictive, that it does put chains on us. They will claim that it doesn't lead to actual freedom, but instead it leads to these insufferable burdens that cannot be carried. Today, just like millennia ago, people look at the ministry, they look at the claims of Jesus, and they conclude that he doesn't come to bring freedom. He instead comes to burden us with this weight that is impossible for us to carry. And so Jesus, in in response to this claim that he is possessed by Satan, that he is being used by the enemy of our souls in order to enslave people, Jesus responds with the words of Mark chapter 3, verse 27. I want to read them again. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus here is saying that far from enslaving people to the enemy of their souls, he has actually come to liberate them from the enemy of their souls. But that's not all. 
This parable, it's not only inspired by the scribes and their claim that he is possessed by Beelzebul in verse 22, Jesus also knows his Bible better than anyone else. And he's actually referring back to this passage in Isaiah. This passage in Isaiah where God promises his people that he is going to be the one to free them from bondage, that he is the one who is going to bind the enemy of their souls, that he is the one who alone is their rescuer. Isaiah chapter 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant or a strong man be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty or strong man shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. You see, the scribes are looking at Jesus and they say, you are possessed by Satan. You are evil incarnate. You are enslaving people to this everlasting bondage. And then Jesus points to Isaiah and says, I'm not possessed by Satan. I am the Lord's anointed. I am the one who comes to defeat evil forever. I am the one who comes to bring freedom to anyone who would listen to my message of the gospel, to free them from this everlasting bondage forever, bringing them into my kingdom. There's this impossible gap between what the scribes are saying, that Jesus is evil incarnate and he comes to enslave, and the reality of who Jesus actually is, that he is God incarnate, and that he is our only hope for freedom. And that's the reason why Jesus issues this strong warning at the end of this section, starting in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Years ago, I... uh, was a counselor at a church camp in Nebraska for a week or two. And one night in our cabin, I was with the junior high students, and we got into this discussion about what it meant to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And one of the students in that cabin was just terrified because he believed that he had done it in the past, that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and now it didn't matter how repentant he was, no matter how much he asked for forgiveness, because as he read this passage, it sounded like he was condemned for all of eternity. Uh, The student had a lot in common with John Bunyan. John Bunyan was uh, an English Puritan from the 1600s. He's famous for his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. You may have have read it or heard of it. Uh, But in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, Bunyan, he actually wrestles with this anxiety over this passage, over this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, of this unforgivable sin. He is consumed with his anxiety in his autobiography because he's wondering if he actually blasphemed the spirit of God in the past. And he's even wondering, he takes it a little bit further than I think anyone else would. He says, even just thinking the thoughts or the words, curse the Holy Spirit, as he's wrestling through this, is that actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And maybe you found yourself at a place where you wrestle with this question. You wrestle with, as you look back at your past, You look at a time before you knew Christ or a time in in a moment of weakness where you said some things that you wish you didn't, where you cursed God with your words or even with your thoughts. And maybe you find yourself in that place and you wonder, am I eternally condemned? 
So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple according to this passage. The answer, the the connection is found in verse 30. Verse 29, Jesus is referring to this unforgivable sin. And then we have this connection to verse 30. In verse 30, it says, for, notice what it says in verse 30. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, according to this text, the scribes, they've followed Jesus around for weeks or months. They've heard his teaching on the kingdom of God, of this need to respond to this message with repentance and faith. They've seen Jesus' power over sickness. They've seen his ability to cast out demons. They've seen this liberating power of Jesus to free anyone from the effects of sin. And in the midst of those weeks and months as they were with Jesus, they have seen that nothing is too powerful for Jesus. And all of this evidence, they compile it, and then they have the nerve, or or perhaps more accurately, they have the, the hard hearts to say, this is the work of Satan himself. Jesus' warning here is stronger than one that we were, would probably be used to because the sin itself is so grievous. Here are these people who have exposed themselves to God time and time and time again, and yet rather than responding to the message of the gospel, they instead harden their hearts. They stubbornly refuse to believe this message that Jesus comes to bring. And that's what Jesus is warning here about. It's not that one time back in middle school or in high school or before you were a Christian where you said something you now regret. In fact, if you've ever worried about that, it is actually a piece of evidence that you have not committed this unforgivable sin, because if you had committed this unforgivable sin, it would mean that your heart was so hard, you were so calloused, so defiant in your refusal to listen to God's Spirit that you would never concern yourself with such a thought. Here we have the scribes. They've persistently exposed themselves to Jesus' teaching. They've consistently exposed themselves to his ministry, and they respond with blasphemy. They say that the work of the Spirit of God is actually the work of the devil, that Jesus does not come to free people. He instead comes to enslave them. This is like the power of the sun. The power of the sun has the ability to soften someone's soften something or harden something. The exact same thing is true with the message of the gospel. It can soften a heart or it can harden a heart. Two weeks ago, we looked at this biblical concept of hard hearts. We saw that every single moment, you have an opportunity to either harden your heart or soften it. We have the opportunity to harden our hearts or soften them every single time. God asks us to do something. Every single time, we have the opportunity to respond in obedience to God. If we do not obey, we actually harden our hearts. We make it harder for us to obey him the next time he asks us to do something. In contrast, every single time God asks us to do something and we do obey, we do listen, we do respond with obedience, we actually soften our hearts. We make it easier for us to obey the next time. Here we have these scribes who have hardened their hearts against Jesus to the point where repentance is almost impossible. That's a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought, not because God won't forgive them, but because they don't want to seek forgiveness and they never will. They become so inoculated to the gospel, so unable to hear it. Their hearts are so hard, they're unable to swallow it. They're unable to recognize who Jesus truly is because they've they've uh, exposed themselves to the gospel time and time and time again. And still say, Jesus is possessed 
by Satan. You see, Jesus' warning here is actually a warning to each and every one of us. Today, right now, in this moment, do not harden your hearts. Today, right now, in this moment, you have heard the message of the gospel, this message of the kingdom, the message that Jesus comes to free us, not this message of, of Jesus coming to enslave us, that Jesus is the one who, who brings us true freedom. And we have the opportunity to respond by hardening our hearts in unbelief or responding with faith, with belief, with adoration, with joy. Today, we have the opportunity to respond either with unbelief or with faith. And in this passage, Mark and the Holy Spirit, they're pleading with you to not harden your heart like the scribes. To not harden your heart like these religious leaders, but instead to respond to the message of the gospel with faith and repentance. And as we close this text, we see one final response, switching back from Jesus and the scribes now to Jesus and his family. Notice how Jesus responds to his family, starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Remember, Mark is connecting these two stories to help us understand a little bit more of the heart condition of Jesus' family, of where they stand before, before they stand before God. He's drawing this parallel here. And I think the parallel is made explicit in, in, in these verses. Notice in verse 31 where it says where Jesus' family is standing. Are they on the inside or the outside? They're standing on the outside. And of course, in one sense, that's simply saying that they're outside the house. But also at the same time, in this deeper sense, it's saying that they are like the scribes in the previous story. That they find themselves standing outside the family of God because in their quest for moderation... And their quest for Jesus to, to be tame, to, to muzzle Jesus. They, they, they wanted Jesus who doesn't demand of their entire lives. They've also hardened their own hearts. You see, it's easy for us to look at this text and say that a hostile response to the gospel, like those of the scribes, those of the religious leaders in verse 22 and 30, that, that, that makes sense to us, that they're found outside the family of God. But the warning of these verses is also saying that even a lukewarm reception even the response like Jesus' family here, this half-hearted following, this mild interest in Jesus' attempt to tame Jesus, to keep the parts of Jesus you like and ignore the parts you don't, will leave you just like Jesus' true family on the outside, looking in. In contrast, Mark describes those who are Jesus' true family. It's those who sit at the feet of Jesus and do the will of God. It's those who sit at the feet of Jesus and do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Mark tells us earlier. Mark chapter 1. We've read this pretty much every single week. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those who are counted as a part of God's true family are those who sit at the feet of Jesus in faith and in repentance. 
It is, those who, it is not those who reject the work of God with hostility or those even who passively compromise and only want this little bit of Jesus here and there. It is instead those who respond to the message of the gospel to repent and believe and those who sit at the feet of Jesus. So what can we learn from this passage? What is this text telling us? It's this one simple truth, a hard heart toward Jesus. Whatever its form, a hard heart toward Jesus will leave you outside God's family. So beware a hard heart. Beware of a hard heart. I would venture a guess that the very fact that you are here this morning, you're probably not openly hostile toward the gospel like the scribes here, that you probably are not someone who, who is saying that, that Jesus is possessed. Secular militant humanism never really oftentimes works its way into the church, and yet perhaps that's where you find yourself. Perhaps you find yourself at this place where you think that, that Christianity is a scourge on the face of the earth. And the warning of this text is saying to not have such a hard heart, to beware of a hard heart. And perhaps for most of us, or many of us this morning, the, the second application or the second warning that's just directed at Jesus' family is more applicable for us. Jesus' family, they're not openly hostile toward him. They actually like him quite a bit, and yet they, they don't want all of him. They just want him in moderation. They want to keep him bound. And this text is reminding us that to have such a heart, to have such an attitude toward Jesus is just as dangerous. This idea of, of a, a heart that masquerades as Christianity, that hides our passivity, is just as dangerous, is just as hardened. One more word on that. I think this is particularly relevant for children and students this morning. I think in one sense, Mark's message here is specifically for those who grew up in the church for those who have parents, who have taught them about the gospel. It's specifically addressed to you, for those who have been a part of the church for as long as they can remember, and yet their faith, your faith is not something that you've made your own, that you've grasped and you've made your own. It's always just something that's out there. Mark's passage here, this message here is reminding us that, that our family won't save us. The faith of your parents will not save you. That you, whatever your age, have to sit at the feet of Jesus as his disciple. Like Jesus' family, you have to stop standing outside, thinking of the gospel, and Jesus is nothing more than just an add-on or an activity. Instead, we have to come and sit at his feet. And that's the message for all of us this morning, to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. The antidote to a hard heart is simply to come and sit at the feet of Jesus. Don't be like Jesus' family, uh, finding themselves on the outside of the house physically and outside of the family of God because of hard hearts. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Do the will of God. Repent. Believe the gospel, for it is that heart. Not a heart that is hardened through hostility, not a heart that is hardened through passivity, but a heart that sits at his feet to which Jesus says, welcome to my family. Enter in and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us to have hearts that are receptive to the message of the gospel. I don't know where everyone's heart is in this room this morning, but we rejoice that you do. 
And you know all of the barriers that we oftentimes put up to keep us from you, to keep following you in moderation. And so, God, I ask that now as you convict us through your spirit of ways that we have avoided following you, that we have avoided sitting at your feet, the ways that we find ourselves standing outside, God, that you would help us to respond with soft and willing hearts, to be people that respond to the message of the gospel with repentance and faith that you and you alone can save us. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.